I'm Naomi Klein, and I am at Navarra Media right now, having just done a wonderful in-depth interview. And this is why I love Navarra Media. And I listen regularly and watch to find out what the hell is going on in the UK. It is so critical to have independent media that we can trust, that goes deep on the issues and also lets people stay up on the day-to-day -day twists and turns. It's going to be especially important for your next election. So I'm incredibly grateful that Navarra Media exists and it exists because people support it. So make sure to support Navarra Media. We need left institutions and that means that we have to support them when they're doing such great work as Navarra Media is. Thanks. Hello, Navarra FM listeners. My name is Eleanor Penny. It's 75 years after the first Nakba, where the establishment of Israel under a mandate from British colonial powers saw thousands of Palestinians murdered and hundreds of thousands more driven from their homes. After the Hamas incursion on the 7th of October, Israel has been conducting a genocidal escalation of violence in a bombing campaign that has flattened much of Gaza and claimed countless thousands of civilian lives. Israeli politicians have been calling for a second Nakba. In the context of this unfolding catastrophe, what does it mean to imagine the future of Palestine? To talk about survival, let alone justice? To begin to try and answer those questions, I sat down with Basma Khalayini, the editor of the book Palestine Plus 100, a collection of science fiction short stories set in 2048, 100 years after the Nakba. Basma is a writer, translator, interpreter and editor at Comma Press. She was born and grew up in the Gaza Strip. In this collection, border walls are built out of sheer energy. People have their conversations monitored for the dangerous possibility of love. Aliens touch down in a troubled land with warnings about the future. Some virtual reality versions of a free Palestine help raise political consciousness, whilst others lull their protagonists into a matrix-like false reality. Everywhere, survivors grapple with the burden of memory, and the ghosts of Palestine stalk the living. I talked to Basma about technology, healthcare, and the necessity of hope. Basma, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us. No, no, thank you for having me. So in this wide-ranging, very kind of complicated and comprehensive uh, collection of short stories, one of the kind of many quotes that immediately jumped out to me is uh, from the story Digital Nation. This is a, a story kind of very broadly speaking, spoiler alerts ahead galore, about a, a rogue a simulation of a free Palestine that, that infects, if you like, various virtual reality sets and computers across uh, Israel slash uh, historic occupied Palestine. And um, understandably, the authorities um, say, oh my goodness, this is a absolute disaster. They're up in arms. There's a lot of um, violent crackdowns, I say understandably from the uh, perspective of an occupying colonial force, of course. And they say, um, utopia was a dangerous thing. It had to be stamped out. Hope was contagious. 
hope was calculating and calculatable. I'm curious as to, I guess, how you respond to that uh, that quote, that sort of um, a challenge of hope and, and and about writing hope for uh, for the future in the context of um, everything that's happening uh, right now in Palestine and particularly, of course, uh, in Gaza. Um, as as a Palestinian, uh, for for Palestinians, we have very very little, very few things going for us. Uh, we are we are under some siege under for, under some form of siege or another, whether it's Gaza or the West Bank or even in the diaspora, uh, and even and Arab Palestinians living uh, Palestinians living in the lands of Israel, Palestinians of 1948, we're all struggling with all uh, some form of siege, and I feel because all our we we all our rights have been all our human rights have been taken away from us. We've been deprived of any form of uh, humanity. We're not perceived as equal, uh, and we are. We can only exist in a world that has been tailored for us by uh, the Israeli, the Israeli government. So, when you you're imprisoned physically and mentally, the only place you can go when you're imprisoned physically, but also when I say mentally, I mean it's very difficult to to escape or to, to even tr- to try and go anywhere even in your head it, it is the only thing that keeps you going is is the feeling that maybe maybe something something good will happen maybe there there is light at the end of the tunnel uh and that it, it is a very powerful weapon under those circumstances it's a very powerful um ally if 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 you will hope is what i'm talking about so under those circumstances when the only thing that keeps you strong as a people or one of the only things that keep you strong as a people are hope. When you deprive people of this hope, that is when you know that you have completely uh, managed to to eliminate them. So that that is where what I, what I feel or what I can and see in that quote uh, by Ahmed. It's Ahmed uh, Ahmed Dina Aisha wrote that story. A big, uh, it's a brilliant story and. Um, Hope is what keeps us going. Thinking that one day we are fighting towards, we are resisting towards towards our freedom and towards being treated towards equality. That is what keeps us going. Let's talk for a moment about um, science fiction, particularly as as a mode of of hope and a mode of kind of participating in the future when you know there are many violent forces arranged to try and, and, and quash many kinds of futures. Of course, this is a uh, science fiction collection. Um, and you talk in the introduction about how uh, science fiction maybe hasn't gotten as much of an airing in Palestinian literature uh, proportionally. Uh, there's been a bit more of a focus on writing the past and writing very urgently the present. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a bit about uh, your thoughts, the writer's thoughts in, in putting this collection together, sort of why science fiction now? So I'm personally not a science fiction. Um, it's. I mean, I've I've watched films. I've watched uh, films I've liked. I've read a couple of stories I enjoyed, but I wouldn't say I'm an. Uh, I don't know what the word is. A science fiction nerd or a geek? Is that the word? I'm not sure. What, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not obsessed with science fiction. However, Comma Press published a previous collection called Iraq Plus One Hundred, and the editor for that collection. Um, Hassan Belasim. Uh, I was doing interpretation for him at different events. Uh, I was freelancing for Comma at the time, and 
as as I was interpreting and getting to know the book better, Iraq Plus 100, I thought this would be a perfect opportunity for Palestinian writers to express the same type of, to express themselves in the same type of contexts. Um, and, and through doing my research, I realized that science fiction is actually a tool that's only ever used by uh, colonialist um, uh, countries because it's all it's full of metaphors. It's full of metaphors um, of you know uh, invading a different planet or invading a different land or keeping certain types of people at bay so the better people could can thrive. And I just felt I maybe it can be flipped. Maybe we can use science fiction in the sense that it's in, in a different sense the futuristic type of science fiction to give Palestinians a platform to, to think freely, to think freely outside of censorship. This was at the beginning or just as, as the, the whole censorship and whenever anyone would express any pro-Palestinian um, opinion would be accused of, of anti-Semitism. It was, this was on the rise and it was really worrying me. So I thought it would give, Pal it would give writers a free space to write about whatever they want, disguise it in whatever metaphors they want. And we'll see what what happens. So I sent the uh, we sent well we sent the call out, and um, we got the stories. So in that sense, science fiction we felt would be would work. Yeah, I'd love to know uh, more about you know how that that orientalist or orientalizing gaze and history that is, is sometimes very bound up with the history of science fiction gets flipped on its head through these stories. And what really jumps out to me is the alien invasion story, right? Um, the final warning by Talal Abu Shawish at, uh, at sort of the end of the collection, because the, sort of the alien invasion narrative is so representative in some ways of the kind of Hollywood disaster movie trope of, it's, it almost feels like a psychic colonial boomerang of like current or former colonial powers thinking through that, oh my goodness, what would it be like to be invaded? What would it be like to suddenly have our way of life and our civilization and our lives be put under threat by a, a, a complete other who has zero investment in our humanity? It's like, hmm, funny that. Talal is, uh, Talal Abu Shawish, the person who wrote this, the, the writer who wrote the story, he's very, um, he's, he's a very optimistic person. And I feel that story was the most, uh, the most optimistic. What happened was all the writers needed to do was just think of their life and uh, disguise it a little bit, and then they came up with the story. It wasn't they didn't need to to look f too far away from from the reality of of being Palestinians. When when we when we watch films or read stories, the protagonist or the good guy is always the person who is generally speaking is always the person who is trying to to make life better for everybody else. So, you know the whole savior kind of, of thing and they they took that that narrative and changed it in all, all in different ways it it is uh curious i guess because you know we, we've been talking about hope and and the kind of persistence of hope the persistence of of people who are um struggling in every sense of the word or in the struggle um prevalent throughout the stories, but it's you know, as you say, it's it's not um it's not a series of utopias that um we are presented with. Very far from it. Um, is that kind of a product of it being sort of near future science fiction? Of course, it's uh, based in 
100 years after the Nakba, which is only 25 uh, years from now, right? And so maybe the possibilities of utopia feel a bit more attenuated. Yeah, so that is a very good point. So like you said, 100 years from Nakba is, is, is nothing because, you know, like I said, 25 years away from now. And the whole point of the stories was to just make it seem like it's somewhere in the future. It didn't need to be so far away from the future. It just needed to provide them with a, a safe space to write about their current reality with, without needing to, without actually writing about their reality. So writing about their reality without writing about the reality. So disguising it in a way. Uh, and it is, it is, it's really, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because if you go to, let's say, if, I mean, I'm from Gaza and if you go to Gaza, honestly, I was there just this time last year. And if you feel, you honestly feel some, some places that you're walking onto some imaginary setting in a story or a, or a movie set, it's, and, and those are things that f for the West are portrayed in films. So they're so far removed to them. It's imaginary. To us, it's a reality. So for writers to write about about things that are to the West imaginary, but to us a reality, there's just a huge irony there, I thought was, that that is how it, how it really got me, is that even though they're writing about supposedly the future, it's not really the future. And what's really striking is the way in which, obviously, by the, the nature of the challenge of the stories, um, they're also writing about literally the time that we're living and recording in right now as a matter of past historical fact. And um, it's really um, both frustrating and uh, captivating to me to sort of see the kind of the permissions that, that history allows. Because, you know, when we're living through a moment, we're often living through a moment within a media landscape that forces us to kind of examine what's going on through the lens of uh, criminality or clash of civilizations or, you know, terrorism or, you know, whatever it happens to be. But a lot of people who will get on board with those kind of narratives are also able to see like past historical struggles for liberation as precisely that, as uh, historical struggles for liberation. And that kind of being able to write our current moment as the past is, is something that feels very powerful to me there. Yeah, um, I think you've just obviously described manufacturing consent in a way. Um, so ever since ever since um, the seventh uh, of October and the way things have been progressing, I feel more and more like I'm living in some strange reality that it just made me doubt every single thing around me. Every everything I hear, it just made me doubt it everything that's relayed to me on the news, it made me doubt it because of, of the way I'm seeing the events portrayed. I know the reality of it. I'm in touch with my friends and family every day on a daily basis. I lived in Gaza. I know exactly how life is there. I know exactly why people do what they do. But then I came here and lived in the UK and, and saw how things are described in a completely different way. And it, it just goes to show really how it makes you doubt Everything you've been told when, when you're studying history makes you that everything you're told on the news. And it gives you this sense of, of paranoia, like what's real and what's not. And that sense of paranoia and um, that sense of being able to trust reality, being able to trust uh, your own memories is something that runs as a really powerful thread throughout the collection. There's a lot of talk of virtual reality, simulated reality, parallel 
realities uh, flickering in and out and the kind of the the inability for like of protagonists to kind of cohere these different realities together it feels kind of nightmarish right there's there's um ways in which the genre conventions of sci-fi very much overlap with the genre conventions of horror there so i'm uh, i'm curious as to what we should make of this continued curiosity around parallel realities and virtual realities that crops up in the collection uh conflict I mean, I can obviously only speak for myself, but I can. I can. I also have conversations with Palestinians. I know with my friends, with my family, we are very, very conflicted. Um, so we want to be back home. We, I, I personally, I left Gaza in two thousand eight. It was a very difficult decision for me, but I, I, I really needed to be somewhere where I could be me, where I could experience life the way other people experience it and because and and you know just drink clean water eat food you know travel be able to travel mm. so i left and but when you leave the moment you leave you suddenly realize that you're you're leaving away a huge chunk of who you are behind you every single since 2008 there have been three assaults on gaza and every assault that's happened has made me feel less palestinian because for my friends who i left back home that that is now part of them it's formed their identity in a way that i can't relate to and yeah it's conflict so palestinians struggle a lot with conflict and survivor's guilt especially the well the ones who left definitely 100% that you want to be back home, but you don't want to be back home. You you want to be with your friends and family, but you can't. I have two children. After the 7th of October happened, the moment the bombing started on Gaza, all I wanted to do was be on a plane and get back home. But I've got two kids and I can't do that. And it's just, there's all there's all types of guilt. I, I feel guilty for feeling guilty. I, I feel guilty for eating. I feel guilty for drinking. Every moment of your life, you're thinking about the things that you're doing that the people you love, your friends and family can't do. And so the themes in the story, I'd say a lot of them are uh, just, for example, like Mejd Kayel, he wrote a story called N. And Mejd Kayel is, is, in, is from Haifa. Now Haifa is, is a city that it was after 1948 became part of Israel. A lot of people who were originally, who are Palestinians stayed there. And some people left. The people who stayed there gained the Israeli citizenship and and integrated within Israeli society. I mean, I say integrated, I use that term loosely because they are treated as second-rate citizens within Israel, though they even still have uh, Israeli citizenship. But they have, I feel they have it the worst in terms of conflict because they are Palestinian. They consider themselves Palestinian and they are Palestinian, but they are living within the Israeli society. They speak Hebrew and Arabic. And I, I can just imagine the kind of conflict that would bring, and Mej's story perfectly describes that uh, conflict because part of him, his parents aren't allowed to go where he can go because his parents, he was born into, 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 into being Israeli-Palestinian. Or that is, I, I feel they have it in terms of conflict, they, are, they have the ultimate struggle. Uh, the diaspora, as I stated beforehand, Myself, I, I just feel my heart and body. There's a pull. You just want to be back home, and but at the same time, it's you also, as a human, want to 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 live the way that humans live. So, conflict and survivor's guilt. Yeah, and that comes through very strongly. I'm I'm thinking 
in the final story in the collection, The Curse of the Mudball Kid by Mazen Maruf, talking about from the perspective of a, a, a last, I'm quoting here, specimen of Palestinian life and a sense of what that would mean, like how one could articulate that sense of, of belonging, that sense of being when so kind of radically uprooted from um, a culture that has been radically oppressed. That, that story is crazy. I love that story. <laughs> so it's so, um, yeah, Mud's Balls is just, I remember reading it. I, mean, I had to read it a few times to kind of, because it's so, it's, it's a bit of a novella, isn't it? Um, he, it? It's weird. It's almost like he predicted what's happening now. Throughout, throughout history, through, since 1948, Palestinians have, have been subject to, to ethnic, very, very slow ethnic cleansing. It's, it's a fact, really, just if you look at the numbers and the methods. And so we've always been worried. You always have this sense of dread. You always feel on edge. You just feel your, your existence is, your culture, who you are, your identity is very passing. You're always looking outwards in the sense that you're always looking outside. Should I leave? Should I stay? Mazen's story uh, just sums up how, how Palestinians are perceiving things at the moment. We're absolutely terrified of being displaced again. My brother, my, my brother lives in Manchester and he, we're all dual national British Palestinian. Uh, just before the 7th of October in September, he went to visit my parents in, in Gaza. And then the 7th of October happened and everyone was evacuating, but he stayed, he's decided to stay there. Now, why has he decided to stay there? Because he's absolutely terrified that there's going to be a second Nakba. And if he leaves, he won't be able to go back. So imagine, imagine carrying that burden with you. Imagine just feeling continually that you need to cling on mm -hmm. with all your might to who you are and where you come from as you see it become less and less, as it disappears slowly more and more. It's, it's just, I can't even describe it. I, and, and then on a daily basis, and then you have to function as a human being, as you're observing this, you have to function. Imagine there are... My my mum's house has been flattened. My dad's house has been flattened. And it's just, and you're seeing your memories just disappear, disappear, disappear. And no amount of, of processing or brain, brain space can retain those, those memories. It's impossible because a lot is disappearing. A lot of landmarks are disappearing. A lot of people are, are dying. A lot of, it's memories. My school's been bombed, my primary school. It's just so I think what Mezen was trying to do was describe what would happen if all Palestinian existence was removed, which is a nightmare we all struggle with because we're being subjected to ethnic cleansing. So we know that someone is out there trying to get to, to, to make it happen. Yeah, and if you were to, um, I don't know, go on the BBC and you know explain that this sort of um, genocidal impulse has been written into cultural, domestic, foreign policy in occupied Palestine, in sort of the state of Israel, um, ever since its inception, you might be called a conspiracy theorist, right? But then you know, it's often belied by literally the stuff that Israeli politicians um, and people in public life are saying very proudly, right? They don't feel the need to um, be coy about it whatsoever. And and that that kind of, you know, dissonance feels very reflective of the dissonance of a lot of the um, principal characters in these stories. And really um, taken by what you were talking about there, about, um, about memory, right? And that just appalling sense of loss 
and a lot of the stories explore technologies or strategies that attempt to restore or preserve memory in some way. That seems to be quite a collective uh, impulse, um, very understandably so, uh, amongst uh, the writers. But there's something about it that uh, almost just like, underscores the enormity of the loss, like in attempting to kind of write things down or save them or copy them into digital virtual reality form, what we're being reminded of is the fact that the thing itself um, no longer exists. Yeah, um, it's, it's weird you mentioned that. I think the only story uh, that didn't uh, talk about memories the way, the way other stories did was um, The Association, uh, where it was illegal to talk about the past. And I feel, I feel again, another story that, that felt like it was, <laughs> that felt it was either, yeah, it was describing the realities of just whenever you talk about Palestine and you want to, you're accused of all kinds of things, you know, you're accused of being anti-Semitic or, you know, a conspiracy theorist, which is a less kind of sinister description. And all we all we are at the moment Palestine it feels like all all it is is being it is reduced to, to to memories it's reduced to the the embroidery the the traditional clothing the kofia the flag the symbolism the food all things that we are trying so hard to to hang on to because we can see it we can see as Palestine just slips through our fingers in a sense and and that is where all the writers for where like for um i think it's pers personal hero where he 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 goes back in the past and talks to his grandfather and we we just have this hunger to to for our history because we can see how it's being erased it's being replaced or curated in in a in a in a very in a very aggressive way we are we we just feel if if things keep going the way they're going we, no one's really going to know anything about Palestine or Palestinian history, which is it's not so long ago. Yeah, so you talk to any Palestinian and they will tell you strange details about their grandparents' house in, uh, in you know, in Mejdel or in, in Karim or all, all of those places. Places they'd never been. Because from the moment Nakba took place, people realised that Move, moving on, we won't have access to all those memories because houses are not just walls, they're not just roofs. And houses are memories. So when you are when you are demolishing houses, you are removing people's people's footprint, people's history. I want to pick up on uh, something that um, leapt out to me in the story "Sleep It Off, Doctor Scott" um, by Selma Dabach. I hope I'm saying that uh, correctly. Um, no, that's correct, Selma Dabaria. Because it speaks to, I guess, one of the powers of the literary mode, if you like, which is the kind of permission to stay with the trouble, to stay with the complexity of both humanity on one side and complicity on the other of people who have been involved in uh, propping up or involved to various uh, extents, even from a dissident point of view, uh, in an apartheid regime in a um a colonial regime and uh, what are the and um, what the prospects are for kind of uh maybe reconciliation is is too uh, soft a word but some kind of um restitution because you have two people who are you know approaching each other like um 
as people and as potential romantic partners but it is again spoiler alert um revealed that um the person of uh, israeli descent was uh, in the military at the time in which the person of palestinian uh, descent lost uh, her children and her husband in a uh, military campaign this is set in the early 2030s and it's um it, it allows us to delve into those um, complications that sometimes are put up as a block saying, you know, well, you know, the, the soldiers are people too. And you think like, okay, sure. But what now <laughs> kind of thing? So, uh, you know, what are we supposed to take away about uh, those kind of complexities and about sort of the power of writing, of writing the oppressor essentially? It is when I'm trying to explain to people how complicated it is to to, so I would come across Israelis, uh, I don't know, in the in Manchester and, you know, whatever, in a party or something, and we'd have a friendly conversation and then each of us in our own way. And I've often gotten the question that, would you ever be able to be friends with someone who, who from Israel? And it is, it has been tried. There have been a lot of attempts to... Um, bring the two people together in like let's say peace camps i've i've gone to a peace camp in 1989 and uh, 1998 sorry <laughs> when i was 16 and uh you had different delegations jordanian egyptian and then you had the israeli delegation the palestinian delegation and you were brought together in groups called co coexistence groups uh, where you'd sit and you would discuss about your you would talk about your equal struggles. I mean, I quote unquote, you know, equal struggles. And, and then you would leave the coexistence group and go and play games and swim. And when I left this camp, I, may, I realized that I was only 16, but I'd, I'd realized that it is impossible. It is impossible to be, to have a deep relationship or any kind of friendship with, for me, with someone whose pure existence means the erasure of my country and my people. Now, I'm not saying that uh, I don't treat Israeli peoples as individuals. I'm sure they're all, I don't paint everyone the same brush, but it would just be very difficult for me to not think about that when I'm having a conversation with someone who is trying to explain their point of view as to why it's just, it's so complicated in that sense. You just, you can't, you can't, it's not something you can set aside because you're talking about someone's pure existence. My existence and their existence are pretty much, they're not mutually exclusive. One of them depends on the erasure of the other. And, and for me, I really, really struggle with that. I mean, I, I also think it's really unfair towards the people, let's say in Israel, I, I feel because they from observation, a lot of them don't really want to be involved in what's happening to the Palestinians. They, they have to go to the army. They get punished if they don't. But at the end of the day, for me, it's very difficult for me to, to indulge in seeing things from their perspective because, because of how badly I've got it and all the damage control I need to do on my side. Uh, I hear of stories of, of of people, you know, Palestinians having relationship with Israelis, especially the Palestinians of 1948 who stayed in Israel. And and I, I would imagine that would be a whole other also layer of conflict, like, you know, the the love, the love, the romantic elements. How do you how do you disassociate? How do you forget everything 
that you know about the identity of the person in front of you and then love them romantically or have a friendship with them. It's just so difficult. Within science fiction, like throughout the history of science fiction, generally speaking, there is uh, like an intense focus on uh, ecological questions, right? And the sort of level of dystopia can often be measured by a level of uh, disconnection or, or dispossession from from the earth, from the land, from what is, uh, you know, quote unquote, natural. And that seems to be a very prominent theme throughout the book, both in terms of just the, the degradation of the natural landscape as a kind of grief in its own right, and also as a knock-on effect, how that degradation eats away at people's ability to be autonomous, right? Like if the air is so terrible and polluted and corrupted that we need, you know, oxygen masks to breathe, um, well, those oxygen masks need to be provided by someone and they need, and they are often controlled by someone. This kind of thing, I think that appears in uh, the story Vengeance by Tasneem uh, Abu Tabik. Yeah. Um, with, yeah, with Tasneem's story, uh, for example, in, in Gaza, uh, where I come from, the the seawater is polluted. Uh, the natural water is being, there's connections taking all the natural resources from underneath the ground. So there's no really clean drinking water. You have to pay for, for drinking water. Same with, we're very, very condensed, very, very condensed. So there's a high level of air and light pollution. Whenever there's any negotiations happening for, for, for Palestinians, Right, so we're always negotiating over things that have already been taking, taken away from us. So if, if there are any negotiations, it's, okay, can you give us the electricity back? Can you give us the water back? Can you, give us, can you open the borders so we can get goods and medicine in? So it's, it feels like we are always in a, in, a, in a fight that it's almost like throwing dust in our eyes to, to make us forget about our original struggle our struggle for identity and, 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 a, and a state by introducing even more struggles. So then we need to focus on those survival struggles and, and then we don't have the luxury to negotiate our identity and our, our state. So, and as part of the occupation, we are provided with all those resources from, from the Israeli state. It's just a way to distract from when you when you when you are trying to feed your children you're not going to worry about getting a free palestine or getting a, a you know your, your rights as palestinians all you want to do is feed your children and it's a very effective distraction uh, tactic that works against us in negotiations because then we, instead of negotiating for uh, equal rights on a on a top level we're negotiating for basic rights like food uh, air electricity and that's what Tasneem's story is, is it covers really, and that that's how she chose to. That's the angle she chose to go with. Yeah, and that question of technology uh, feels really uh, key to me because you know there are various uh, forms of like high sci-fi with grand technological wonders and horrors, and uh, quote unquote low sci-fi, which is a bit more kind of grounded in technologies that we might be familiar with today. But because you know technology is. Is so key to the genre of science fiction, but also so key to Israeli oppression, both in terms of how it practically functions and um, also the importance of the occupation economically. We've heard and just horrifyingly seen uh, in very stark terms recently how Gaza and Palestine more generally has been used as a testing ground 
for um, the kind of technology that uh, the Israeli military industrial complex is flogging throughout the world. And um, I would love to hear from uh, you, Basma, about um, just the, the relationship that, that you see of, of these uh, different writers in the collection to uh, the possibility of, of technology to liberate versus the the idea of technology as something that is um, inherently kind of um, controlling and, and alienating and nefarious, if you like. The IDF have, have, like you said, they have a very, very advanced technological military. It is absolutely, it is, I think it's like the seventh strongest in the world or something like that. And they mainly use it not just to to assault and bomb the Palestinians. They use it to surveil them, like you said. I mean, my any any in a very dystopic way, any Palestinian, myself, for example, I've got something called the Palestinian ID. It has a unique number, and it states my religion, my marital status, how many kids I've got, their date of birth, and whether or not I'm married. Uh, and 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 this and this is a way for for the Israelis to see who's going in, who's going out, who's doing what, what the yeah. It's like a census thing, also. So with with us, I feel I I personally I feel that technology has recently recently served us in the in the social media sense since the seventh of October. I feel I, I might be wrong. This is just observational that there's been a lot more awareness about what's happening in Palestine because Palestinians have taken the news or the 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 narrative or into their own hands through social media, through pictures of drones, through through all of that, and those are all. This is all technology that's utilized for us to take to take control of what people see. I mean, I know it's not significant enough to change policies and governments, but on the ground, I can see it, and my neighbors on in my school that I can see that people are a lot more aware of what's happening, and they're not taking any any kind of news from anywhere else apart from social media platforms, and 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 you've got all those. Uh, Palestinian journalists or influencers on the ground who are turned reporters using their drones, using their phones to just relay the the stories out there. And it's just very, it is very, it's very strange when a, a whole city is being reduced to rubble, but yet people still can use their phones to, to relay this. I mean, like the blackout that happened at the beginning, there was a three-day blackout and then suddenly no one knew anything. It's just, I feel that technology in that sense has ha- has served us well, but only on that level, really. And there is something about the, the proliferation of the ability of people in Gaza to uh, speak for themselves, to you know show their own experiences, which lends a kind of like fantastical slash sci-fi air to Haspara to the propaganda of the uh, Israeli state. Um, it, if you spend any time looking at it, this the idea of this sort of you know clash of civilizations, forces of darkness and light, etc. It you know it's not only you know is is you know clearly um, very much a very reliable strategy of, of um, racist colonialism, uh, but there is something kind of transparently absurd it feels like there is uh, there are cracks showing at least in people's ability to so enthusiastically get on board with israeli propaganda at the moment i mean maybe that's um maybe that's optimistic of me that echoes what i'm saying i just feel i feel people aren't taking uh what they read for face value anymore because uh we we are being told 
that Palestinians are anti-Semitic, they want all Israelis to die, and they, they, you know, but then, you know, actions speak louder than words. All we want is equal rights. When you talk about, when you're telling the world, look, those Palestinians, they want all uh, Israel and all Jewish people dead. But at the moment, what people are seeing are the Israelis carpet bombing Palestine and Gaza, and and the settlers in, in the West Bank attacking at, at checkpoints. And so people people are not stupid. There's only so 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 much you can rely on before people start realizing, hang on, something's not right here. And and what helps with this is the massive amount of images and news coming out from Palestine. Uh, so I, I think I'm I'm like you. I feel slightly. I feel no. I do feel optimistic that people. There's a lot more awareness at the moment. I'm very carefully optimistic about people's awareness of the Palestinian cause and bigger context. Can you talk to me a bit about um, the focus on uh, the technology of health? That was something that really struck me that the stories had in common, that these futures uh, contain bionic limbs and uh, microbial cures for various illnesses. And whilst that provides for like an immediate need, there is a, a lot that gets uh, left behind in terms of you know who gets access to it and also uh, what can't be cured by a bionic limb in terms of the more lasting, perhaps, um, psychological wounds. There is absolutely no surprise that the writers, a lot of them, uh, were focusing on these, whether it's subconsciously or consciously, there were, there were themes in their stories. And the reason, the reason is uh, we can't get access to basic health facilities. Women are dying giving birth on, bo- on borders in the West Bank. People are dying because of lack of dialysis. You don't have access to, to immediate medical care if you need it. And and when you do, a lot of a lot of Palestinians, let's say cancer patients, are referred to Israeli hospitals. But even within those referrals, uh, there was a little girl called Aisha Lulu. I think this was a few years ago. I don't know exactly when year, what year. She was a terminally ill cancer patient, and she was referred to an Israeli hospital to get treatment. She got a permit. Her parents didn't. She went to the hospital. She died alone, without her parents because they weren't given a, a permit by the Israeli government. Now, there's so much insecurity when it comes, when it comes to access to, to medical or facilities. It's, it, is absolutely, it is absolutely anxiety-inducing. Now, with regards to the bionic limbs, I would say this also is a, is a, a, a reference or an homage to um, marches of return in 2018, the, uh, where there was a peaceful marches that took place. And the Israelis, uh, when they were shooting back, they were aiming at limbs, uh, and they were and 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 a, there was a lot of, of um, amputations that happened during that wave. Uh, there's been an increase in accessibility uh, awareness when it, in Palestine because there's a huge increase in people on wheelchairs and disabilities, physical disabilities. So. I am not one bit surprised, and I wasn't, that there was such a heavy influence of um, medical references or health references in the stories. The theft of uh, children's imaginations and of um, Palestinians' imaginations uh, more generally is is made quite literal 
throughout the collection and uh, alongside an anxiety about um, preserving memory, uh, there is also an anxiety about uh, the misuse of memory, right? This mode of salvage anthropology, if you like, whereby um, Palestinian uh, memories are kind of disconnected from Palestinian people and they are kind of preserved in aspic, but, you know, Palestinians themselves are kind of uh, rendered no longer quote unquote necessary for that. Um, could you talk to me a bit uh, about that? I kind of um, am thinking here of a tweet that I saw, you know, a few weeks ago because I have spent the last six weeks um, scrolling as I'm sure many, uh, many Navarre FM listeners have uh, also done, oh, yeah. um, which was about, you know, stop talking about Palestinians in the past tense, <laughs> stop talking in the past tense about the kind of beauty and strength of the Palestinian people when we're still here, we're still fighting. And, and that uh, seemed to, to resonate with a lot of the stories in the collection. Absolutely. I mean, it's not surprising at all. It's this, as I said, I think at some point at the beginning of the interview, it's a huge memory is a huge thing for us. We cling on to it. We cling on to the symbols. We cling on to, 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 the, to the recipes, to the food, to the clothes, because we have lost our land pretty much, or we're in the process of losing what's left of it. It's being eaten by settlements in the West Bank and being carpet bombed in Gaza. So it just, the knee-jerk reaction to that is to cling on to every single thing, that every single memory that you have and, and expand it by, by a hundred. I've got a daughter, she's, you know, her dad's English. He's white English, Derbyshire. I'm Palestinian and all I do all the time is militantly tell her things about food and clothes that her dad wouldn't ever tell her on his side. You know, uh, she she knows what colour, what colour my, the Gazan embroidery dress is. She knows, uh, you know, uh, what song I dance to uh, in a such and such. It comes from, you need to keep Palestine alive because in one shape or other, because our power lies in us holding on to our identity and our memories in, in a way that makes it impossible to erase them. And we pass them on from one generation to the other. Because we see that carpet bombing and, and settlements aside, uh, the, the Israel's target has been our, our culture. And I see this in practicalities, you know, in terms of food. I'd go to a restaurant and someone would say, yeah, falafel is an Israeli dish. It's not, it's not Palestinian, but it's, 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 it's kind of, it's, you find it in Greece, you find it in Palestine, but it is, it is very Palestinian. And then now it's adopted by the Israelis. Same with hummus, same with a lot of things. Now I understand that cuisine is fluid, but I feel this is a tactic of erasing a culture and then adopting it as your own. And, and it's just very, very painful. And like I said, the knee-jerk reaction to that is you then want to cling on to it more and emphasize its identity more because without without the land, all we've got left is the culture. So we carry that along with us and we give it to our children. So um, many of the stories uh, deal with the idea that you know freedom will come or some form of liberation, some form of end to the occupation will come. Uh, but you know, given the fact, especially that um, there 
it, it will only take place, you know, in this 25 years time. And there have been, you know, 75 years plus prior to that of occupied history. It will not be a, a simple thing. So I, I would love to know more about your thoughts about this mode of kind of speculative fiction or predictive fiction or science fiction to think through what the complex, what those complexities might look like, what, you know, the complexities of a piece might look like as uh, not just a moment, but as a kind of quite a complicated, uh, drawn out process. My, 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 uh, ideally, like if I, if, if I had any control over, if I was God, right, I would like, I would like us to have one state, I don't know, call it Israel, Palestine, whatever, where everyone just lives together. I mean, look, it's, Israel's there. It's never going to go away. That's it. It's a country. It's established. It's not going anywhere. So I would just love for there to be one state where we all live together harmoniously with equal rights. And then that's it. That's what I would like. But do I see any indication of any of that happening? No, because there is there are really, really strong religious beliefs at play here. And where faith comes in, all logic goes out the window. So I don't feel very hopeful at this point. I don't when when we when we did this book, it when when I spoke to Ra in Comma, uh, Comma Press, he's the series editor, and when I when I uh, suggested this kind of uh, this this book, you know, the way he did the previous one, I all I wanted was to give to give uh, Palestine, some Palestinian writers a platform and give them a, the space to just talk about things that they, you know, think outside the box a bit because. I just I didn't for a second think that a lot of the stories would just turn into predictions of what's happening now and and I found that just recently just thinking about the stories it just made me a bit made me it made me worry that we are on trajectory here and and the only way it will it, anything will finish is if Israel just reoccupies Gaza and the West Bank and then that's it and I'm finding it very, very difficult to cling on to any kind of hope at this point. All I want is for the killing, the killing to stop. I just want the killing to stop. And then we'll think about the politics of it later. Tell me more about what it's like to, to revisit this, this form of uh, speculative fiction in the context of, you know, what is, of course, like a really urgent moment of of crisis with the with the genocide that's happening literally as we are having this conversation i think like i said i just i feel it's very very uh, strange it's or maybe surreal or it's very strange how <laughs> the stories um especially mudballs predicted what's happening at the moment uh mm. so it First, I was when I read that story the first time. I thought, "Oh man, this is crazy!" Like, "Oh, this is you know, this is not this is this situation." I can see that scenario, but like maybe in a I don't know, five hundred years, whatever. But then, then seventh of October happened, and suddenly it's not so far away. It's not at all far away, and and that's what it felt like revisiting the stories. It just felt terrifying that I've asked those writers to just write about the future, an imaginary, unlikely, or scenario that is based on a reality, a potential outcome. And then for it to happen, that is, that was just, it just felt very, very scary. 
So what would you like readers who are kind of approaching this text now, you know, in 2023 to maybe take away from the collection? I would, I would hope that the collection would give them some insight and context into, into Palestine, Palestinian life, into Palestinian history, and into the Palestinian way of thinking and how their perception of, of what's happening is. It, I, I, would, I would hope it would give them an alternative, an alternative to the kind of, to, to, to the sources that, where they're getting their news and information and literature from. That's what I was hoping. Anyone who's slightly curious about about the bigger context can can read the intro, read the stories, and they will have even more questions, but they will hopefully be the right questions. Why are Palestinians so angry? Why 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 what are Palestinians resisting against? Why are they trying to break free from their prison? We didn't just we don't love making rockets and being bombed and, and being killed and be, it's not a hobby of ours. It's not we just woke up one day and I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to build a rocket and I'm going to shoot at Israel. This kind of anger, the resistance is always against something. It's not and we are not we are not racist by we are not we don't have any issues with the Jewish religion Islamically, religiously. Now, I'm not religious, but I've studied religion. I know how my people think. All religions are equal, the Abrahamic religions at least. We have belief in all of them. So there's always extremists everywhere. And I feel it's very unwise to tarnish a whole population by what certain extremists or certain people with extreme thoughts think. And yeah, the, the main question would be, why do, why do they think Palestinians are resisting? What do they think is going to happen to all those children now that have been deprived of their families, that have been maimed, that have been damaged, what orphaned, what, what do they think is going to happen to them? What kind of generation is going to, to, to come up now? And when that generation comes up, why will they be doing and feeling the things that they are feeling? That is the question that the reader needs to ask. Asma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for your questions have been have actually had me thinking uh, about a lot of things. So thank you very much for your brilliant questions. And thanks for everybody. And thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.